Thanks, Nick. Uh, I read an essay one time called How um, Susie Bear's T-Shirt Ended Up on Yusuf Mama's Back. And a journalist followed a T-Shirt that was donated by Susie Bear in Manhattan and said, what happens to this T-Shirt? What happens to this incredibly large industry of donated goods by well-intentioned people in the United States? And what happens is this T-Shirt, unbeknownst to Susie Bear and to millions of other people, ends up getting turned into a for-profit industry with millions of other clothes and dumped on all kinds of um, villages, specifically in Africa, and ends up wiping out their cottage industries. And then the, that particular shirt ended up on a man named Yusuf Mama, who bought the shirt. And as I began to read this story, I began to realize, wow, the way that I'm living and the way that all of us are living through small and well-intentioned actions, we're part of a system that's laying wake a wake of destruction all around the world that we're completely unaware of. And it became a moral and spiritual crisis for me. Like, what does it mean to be a well-intentioned person doing the best that I can to do well to the people around me while at the same time being stuck in a system of violence that I'm unaware of that's causing destruction someplace else that I have no relationship with? And so this evening is dedicated to that idea. There's a story of, um, as I was on this process, I decided to explore seminary for a little while. And I sat in in Harrisonburg, Virginia, at Eastern Mennonite University's uh, seminary. And the teacher there, I could tell, had a pretty different take of the gospel than I did. Um, and so I was really curious when he told this story. I was surprised that he said in the 80s, he became really concerned about nuclear proliferation. You know, who would Jesus detonate? Probably not very many people. So he decided that it just made sense for him to go on a speaking tour across churches in the United States with a buddy of his and to see if he could galvanize the American Christian bloc, which is millions and millions of people, to stand up against this, this obvious blasphemy of the proliferation of weapons that would destroy creation. And his report to us in that classroom that day was that he failed. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, we failed because I never realized that the modern American church is dedicated to protecting and preserving the greatest empire the world has ever known. I was completely shocked when he said that. And it's stayed with me ever since. And I stopped this Wendell Berry quote that I was reading halfway through. And now I want to read you the other half. The Bible leaves no doubt at all about the sanctity of the act of world making, or of the, that the world. Let me start over. The Bible leaves no doubt at all about the sanctity of the act of world making, or of the world that was made, or of the creaturely or bodily life in this world. We are holy creatures, living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. And so. Because of that, probably the most urgent question now faced by people who would adhere to the Bible is this, what sort of economy would be responsible to the holiness of life? What, for Christians, would be the economy, the practices, and the restraints of right livelihood? I don't believe that organized Christianity now has any idea. I think its idea of a Christian economy is no more or less than the industrial economy, which is an economy firmly founded upon the seven deadly sins and the breaking of all ten of the Ten Commandments. And then he ends by saying, 
Despite its protests to the contrary, modern Christianity has become willy-nilly the religion of the state and the economic status quo. I mean, just, just take a second to consider the statement that a Christian economy, no different than an industrial economy, founded on the seven deadly sins and the breaking of all ten of the Ten Commandments. That's one of the most incredible indictments of modern church and for those of us who would call ourselves Christians that I've ever read. Lenise Pinkard, who is an African-American preacher on the West Coast who left the church because she felt like it was no longer integrity to say what she wanted to say and to be within the confines of the church that she was in, jumps off from where Wendell Berry left off. And she says, consequently, our religion cannot possibly fulfill its original function of disturbing the peace. The church cannot foster the gospel of revolutionary, death-defying self-annihilation and the service of love the net effect of which is to keep people at a safe remove from the radically transformative experience of the gospel. I just want to read that again. Consequently, our religion cannot possibly fulfill its original function of disturbing the peace. Maybe we shouldn't be peacemakers. Maybe we should be disturbing the peace. That's an interesting flip-flop. The church cannot foster the gospel of revolutionary, death-defying self-annihilation in the service of love in the service of love. The net effect of this is to keep people at a safe remove from the radically transformative experience of the gospel. All this is laying a foundation and a framework, which you might be picking up on, of a concern that I have for spiritual formation. I love the idea of spiritual formation. Um, I've always wanted it. I think that's why I wanted to be a monk is because I mean, can imagine every day going to like spiritual direction with someone who's like generations older than me who can say, hmm, maybe you should try this today to get closer to God and the Christ consciousness. Like, great, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you say. I'm so excited. And I think oftentimes we think of since Protestantism, unfortunately, left behind a rich tradition of formation when they left Catholicism. And we haven't done much to actually figure out what does it mean to be a Protestant and to engage in spiritual formation in a way that we would honor the radically transformative experience of the gospel and a Jesus who is a thousand times more frightening than the killer sea. Not our nice uncle who's preaching about personal morality. That's a very different Jesus and a very different gospel. And I think spiritual formation invites us into that one. But I think a lot of times we think, oh, spiritual formation, that'll be like this nice process where I kind of like get, go deeper and it's kind of like having the nice uncle who kind of like guides me along the way. But Abraham Herschel, a prophet of the Jewish tradition, said, God is not nice. And God is not your uncle. God is an earthquake. And I wonder what it begins to mean to us if we begin to internalize the idea that Jesus is a thousand times more frightening than the killer sea and God is an earthquake and the gospel is a radically transformative experience. I get a little excited when I start thinking about that that way. Uh, Dallas Willard, who's talked a little bit about spiritual formation for Protestants in particular, has a little wisdom on this. And he says, if spiritual formation merely becomes a new label for things we're already doing, it will leave us right where we are. So if we embark on this idea of spiritual formation and we add maybe some spiritual direction one night a week and maybe a few songs here and there and reading a few different things, the chances are we're going to end up right where we are. So the question that we begin to hold is, if we're going to ask the question of what does it mean to be an authentic Christian, I mean really taking on the mind and the being of Christ in today's world, what can we do and what does it mean so that we don't end up right where we are? 
what's an authentically way of, authentically different way of engaging the truth that even though we read it, I went to church every Sunday growing up and I never had contact somehow the church in its ways. I don't know how it did it. It's exactly what Lenny Spinker said. Somehow anesthetized me and like created a distance for me of, what, of the radically transformative experience of the gospel that I only had to find out on my own later on. That's kind of amazing, actually, if you think about it, that that happened. To me, that's amazing. So, uh, sometimes I might start talking a little fast because I get a little excited. <laughs> and I want to sh- share lots and lots of things with you and not enough time. And I also want to make sure there's lots of time for you all to engage in this. So, I start talking really fast. So, if I start talking fast, you can just go a little bit like this, calm me down a little bit. It's great. Um, I feel sorrow in my heart in this moment that I won't be able to share all that I want to you with this evening because it feels so alive and true for me. And I hope that I can convey it in such a way that you'll see that it has hopefully meaning for you as well. The best image that I've seen of what an authentic Christian formation could look like comes from a person who wasn't a Christian. This is where it gets really exciting. There's a guy named... uh, Dr. Mordecai Johnson, who was the president of Howard University for 34 years, he said, it's ironic yet inescapably true that the greatest Christian of the modern world was a man who never embraced Christianity. You can probably guess of whom I speak. Who was that? Who could it be? You already know I'm here to talk about the Gandhian program, so it's not too much of a leap to think, maybe this cat's talking about Gandhi. Um, The image most of us have of Gandhi, if we know much about him at all, is that he's the person who freed India from the colonization of Britain without firing a shot. And maybe we know about that he did something about marching towards the ocean to pick up salt. Uh, But what most people don't know is that when he began his journey, when he left India to go study law in Britain, He was scared of the dark. He wore British suits and a top hat. He was fully in line with the complete concept of empire. It's amazing to think that someone who was afraid of the dark in his 20s became the Mahatma, the great soul that has influenced all of our lives, whether we know it or not, ever since. He was introduced to the Sermon on the Mount while he was in Britain, and he said it went straight to his heart. He said the message there transformed his life. And he said, my aim in my life is to live the Sermon on the Mount. Every day for the last 40 years of his life, every day he spent two hours in prayer and meditation and read the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, his text from, from Hinduism. And then he read the Sermon on the Mount every day. But it gets a little more interesting. Ghani said this, the message of Jesus Christ, as I understand it, is contained in the Sermon on the Mount unadulterated and taken as a whole. If then I had to stand on the Sermon on the Mount and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But negatively, I can tell you this, that in my humble opinion, what passes as Christianity is a negation of the Sermon on the Mount. Not only that, he went on to say, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. He brings to us the same challenge 
that the other people I've read bring to us. How is it possible, again, that Wendell Berry has another quote, very simple, that I really like. How is it possible that, as Wendell Berry said, what I see is a virtually catastrophic discrepancy between biblical instruction and Christian behavior? A virtually catastrophic discrepancy between biblical instruction and what he says is allegedly respectable Christian behavior. It's kind of amazing. So how did Gandhi get from a person who was fully in line with empire and afraid of the dark and a squeamish, scared man to a person who was ready to take on a lifetime of imprisonment, who was willing to die by fasting to prevent violence between Hindus and Muslims, a man who helped galvanize the entire civil rights movement, Accidentally, of course. I mean, he didn't know he was doing it. But Martin Luther King said this, Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals, which again, as as I would say, was at best the message of the church that I grew up in was like, hey, love your neighbor. He was the first person to lift the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. Love for Gandhi was a potent instrument for social transformation. It was in this uh, Gandhian emphasis on love and nonviolence that I, Martin Luther King, discovered the method for social reform that I've been seeking. So Gandhi gave us an archetype. He left us with an archetype of how we could follow what could be called authentic Christian spiritual formation, which brings together mindfulness and peacemaking which actually, I would invert both those terms, and I would say, let's not do peacemaking, let's disturb the peace, the peace of empire, the peace of comfort, the peace of things and business as usual, right? And mindfulness, I think, is a kind of distracting term. I would suggest mindlessness uh, in the sense that the... (coughs) Maybe I shouldn't get ahead of myself. I'll get to mindlessness in just a second. Gandhi laid out a three-tiered program. He never actually really laid it out this specifically, but his researchers who went back said he was really kind of talking about three things at the same time. He never listed it this way because for Gandhi, it was a unified action. These weren't different things. Mindfulness and peacemaking was the same thing. It was just the same thing in a different context, if that makes sense. If you're doing something and it shows up by yourself at your home, it might look like mindfulness. If you're doing that exact same thing, and you're doing it in front of riot police, it might look like peacemaking. It's the same thing. And so his three-tier program is this. Step number one is self-transformation. Looking inside of ourselves and removing every single ounce of hate, jealousy, violence, greed, lust, everything that's in there that would bring forth and perpetuate violence in the outside world. You don't have to go far in the Summer on the Mount to see the exact same thing. So he said self-purification. Self-purification, self-transformation is step one. Step two is what he called the constructive program. Building the world that you want to see or taking that purified sense of self, the deepest essence of love, and putting it in context to the world. What does it actually look like for you? What's it look like for you to live out that message as fully as you can with full integrity? Start building it. And he said that this, the constructive program, was a hundred times more dear to him than political action and activism. Even though we think of Gandhi as a political activist, for him, he was building a world based on love, trust, peace, wisdom. 
and connection with source. That's what he was up to. And so then he said, you're doing that 90% of the time. All the time you're working on self-transformation, every moment of your day, you're working on self-transformation. 90% of your time you're working on the constructive program, actually and actively building the world of love that you want to see in the world. And then 10% of your time is engaging systems and structures of, or systemic violence in the world, or the structures of empire, you might want to say. But he also said this, Michael Nagler, uh, who studied a lot of nonviolence, said, in a world of falsehood, truth is inherently confrontational. In a world of falsehood, truth is inherently confrontational. And so because of that, Gandhi was pretty clear that if you're doing the constructive program well, if you're really fully engaged in a body, it will be attractive. People will be excited about it, being inundated as they are with the messages of empire, which is you're not enough, you're, you don't have enough, you aren't enough, you need all these things to be you know, successful or whatever. And it'll grow and you'll run up, two things will happen, either you'll run up against the walls of empire and you'll have to figure out a way to move past them or you'll be invaded by empire because they're not gonna like what you're doing. And then you have to know how, to, either way, you're gonna have to know how to respond with love or what, Gandhi, no, what Martin Luther King called the double conversion, how to show up in the face of your quote-unquote opponent uh, and to see the truth that they're holding and to be willing to be converted to their side because you know that they have a truth they're carrying too and trusting that if you do that, then they might also be converted or at least hear the truth that you have to offer. Now, the important point that both Gandhi and Martin Luther King have pointed out is that the average citizen of the United States usually doesn't do any of these three things but if they do, they tend to invert the process. <coughs> so if someone is, has the, like, the time and the capacity to begin to see that there's something in the world that doesn't make sense to me or that I don't like and I actually want to take some of my precious time and move against it or change it in some way, they'll usually do some sort of political action or activism. Maybe they'll start an NGO or maybe they'll march in the streets or something like this. We kind of know the classic avenues of approach that were kind of codified by the civil rights movement and have kind of taken on their form ever since. Uh, so they said, it's rare for people to do that, but some people do that and that's great. It's much more rare for people to actually make, make the leap, to be like, actually, I'm complicit. In some way, I am complicit in the violence that I am seeing in the world and I need to change the world that I, I want to create a different world. I actually want to create a different world. I just don't want to move against something. I want to create something else. If you really want to change something, don't fight against it. If you really want to change something, create a new model that makes the old model obsolete. That's F. Buckminster Fuller. One of my favorite quotes. Create something new that makes the old one obsolete. So I said, very rarely will the West ever move towards saying, how is this relevant in my life and how could I change it? And then even more rare than that, they said, will people actually look inside and be like, what are the sources of greed? What are the patterns? What are my mental patterns of attachment to pleasure and control? What are those sources that are actually, when amplified over many people over a long period of time, create the systemic structures of violence that we see playing out right now? And how can I eliminate those from myself? so that I have the wisdom to share how that's possible for others. Does that make sense? I've got like three nods. The pizza has taken all the blood out of your brain. It's down here right now. So just as an example, uh, I want to I be a peacemaker. I want to stop the violence that I see in the Congo. Uh, so I'm going to start an NGO uh, that helps to work in some way like uh, free the children who are under strife or under oppression in Congo based on the violence that's there. 
that would be a typical response, I would say, from someone who is engaged in social activism in some meaningful way for them. Does that make sense? Uh, but rarely, I think, would that person who just thought that then say, well, actually, that war is based on um, resource extraction that's fueling the American way of life right now as we see it via electronics, via jewelry, things like that. So maybe it would make a lot of sense for me if I want to align and actually create a different way of being in the world that would remove the need for that violence in the first place, I'm going to remove electronics and jewelry from my life. It's very rare to find someone who makes that leap. Rarer still is the person who will not only do that, but then go on to say, and why is it that I crave those things in the first place? What is the addiction mechanism that happens when I pull the iPhone out of my pocket and I keep wanting to check to see if I have a text from my friend? What is the mechanism that's happening in my mind that makes me want to, um, maybe we can just leave it at that. I think you all know kind of all these different mechanisms that are alive in all of us, including myself, of course. And so Gandhi, that's why he says, invert the paradigm, start from within, work out. That's what spiritual formation can look like. And with the time we have left, I want to walk us through each one of those three steps. So we're going to follow the Gandhian pattern. So we're going to follow number one, which is self-transformation. Uh, by the way, there's a quote right behind me that I'm remembering from Romans 12:2, which you probably can't read. Uh, and it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Isn't that nice? I love that. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your being. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. This is, I love every essence, every word of this quote. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your being. Most translations, by the way, have mind there instead of being, but the Greek word is nous, and I like the idea of like, Paul was, I feel like, speaking about our entire essence, not just our mental processes. So I feel like he's talking about the transformation of our being and then test it. Test it. Gandhi called what he was doing experiments with truth. He said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not divinely inspired. I'm just doing what I think is best based on the messages that I'm receiving from the Sermon on the Mount and from the Gita and some other things. I'm trying them. I'm not doing anything special. Everyone can do this. Everyone. Just try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, throw it away. It's not for you. Test it. Test it. And you will be able to see by yourself if you approve that this is what God's will is. You'll know from the still silent voice within whether this is true or not. And if it's not, leave it behind. All of the great teachers have said this. Don't take my word for it. Test it. Only you can know if it's true for you. It's so awesome. He called his Gandhi called his autobiography my experience with the truth. My experiments with the truth. That was his whole premise. I'm just trying stuff out, y'all. Give it a try. Seriously. And you're all kind of nodding. You're like, yeah, that's kind of a good idea. Then you're going to go home. You're kind of going to forget about this. You're going to read the Sermon on the Mount. Like, those are some good ideas. And you're going to keep on going with your life. I really actually want to know, like, what prevents us from taking the leap of actually trying some of these things? Some of these radical ideas of loving your enemy. Some of these radical ideas of, like, if you even think about another person, you've created adultery in your heart. Or you've actually committed adultery. If you have just even had that thought. Can you imagine how radical these teachings actually are? I love it. I love the challenge. I will fail every day at trying to live these things. Every day is a complete failure for me. It's so horrible and exciting. I can, tell I'm, I can see I'm selling you guys already on this. Like, wow, this sounds awesome. I can't wait to do this. I'm going to fail every day. This is sweet. 
Self-transformation is number one. I was really wondering, what's it, how do we actually try these things out? I really wanted to create an experience where we had a chance to try this out. So for me, I think with the short time that we have, considering this is a lifelong process, beginning with self-transformation. The self-transformation piece is beginning to see and feel within yourself all the things that pull you off center, all the things that pull you off of the still silent voice within, your connection to the Holy Spirit, which is your direct connection to God. Be still and know that I am God. Be aware and present of the still quiet voice within. Learn its language. Learn its language. It is not English or Spanish or Arabic or any human created language. The language of God comes to us in a very different, very, I would call it a sophisticated language. I like to think of it as the sophisticated language of life. We are in a dynamic dialectic with the divine all the time, all the time. And people are walking around saying, God, give me a sign. I can't figure out what to do. It's kind of like the fish swimming around the water being like, where the heck is the water? We're in a dynamic dialectic with a sophisticated language of the divine all the time. I promise you that this is true. It's been my experience. and been the experience of so many others of the mystical tradition who have said, I've had contact with this thing that is completely beyond the human language. And I can tell you that it's real and it's alive and it's working for us. So let's take a moment to see if we can make contact. Uh, we're just going to take five minutes. Because that's all you need, apparently. We're just going to take five minutes. We're going to do a very simple form of contemplative prayer. Some people call it meditation. It doesn't matter what word you choose. The point is this. We're just going to take a moment to begin to come into an awareness of what pulls us off our center. And I can tell you already, I'll break the surprise for you. The things that pull us off our center are our bodily uh, needs, concerns, desires, and then our mental addictions and loops. And now you get a chance to actually see what I'm talking about. We're going to take five minutes. We're just going to sit in silence. Here's probably what's going to happen. First, your body's going to be kind of uncomfortable. You're going to like shuffle, shuffle around a little bit. You're going to find where you can actually get to be with a, maybe a nice kind of straight aligned back where you can finally kind of like relax and be in a space. Okay, I can actually do this. And once your body finally feels a peace and like, okay, master, I'm feeling good now. You can just do your thing now. Immediately, if not before, the mind's going to kick in and be like, oh, here's the things I'm going to do tomorrow. And oh, I just heard that great song on the radio. Let's like kind of like jam to a little bit while I'm sitting here. It's all going to start going. And all you have to do in this five minutes is just go, oh, that's the body. And then kind of come back to what lies in the middle, the awareness and stillness that lies in the middle. Then the mind's going to start going, oh, that's the mind, come back to the middle. Oh, that's the body, come back. Oh, that's the mind, come back. Does that make sense? You're coming back to the still small voice within, which if you haven't tried this before, doesn't even feel like it's there when you begin. But as another Mary Oliver poem, poem said, as you went deeper and deeper into the world, you began to identify a new voice you began to identify a new voice that wasn't anyone else's, it was actually your own. And by your own, I believe that she means like the voice of the deep inner quiet knowing within. So we're gonna take five minutes, we're gonna try it out. And then at the end of that, before we break that concentration, I'm gonna ask you two questions. And my only invitation for you is to trust your first response. Trust your first response. Our mind and our ego is an absolute master of talking us out of the wisdom that we receive on a daily basis, an absolute master, absolute. 
And so the first way to begin to identify a new voice, a new still silent within, is to trust your first response. Trust that gut hit. And don't argue yourself out of it. Oh, that's silly, or I can't believe I said that, or like, I can't tell that to anyone else, or whatever it is that comes up. Trust it. So we're going to take five minutes. Did, any questions on the exercise? You're just going for the awareness and just identifying. You're not arguing or pushing back. You're just identifying, oh, that's the mind. Oh, that's the body. Come back to the center. Make sense? Okay. And then I'm going to ask a couple questions at the end of it. <laughs> we're going to do it. Okay, go. And now when you're ready, turn to a neighbor and discuss the past few minutes with them about whatever's meaningful or relevant to you. Take a few minutes and discuss. If it's okay with you all, maybe I'll, we'll continue to the next part because we're running out of time so swiftly, which is a little sad for me because I had all these charts and graphs and amazing <laughs> things drawn up for the next section. It was really gonna be an amazing analysis of econ economics and how to engage the world and we don't have time for any of it. So I invite all of you to come up to the retreat in about six weeks or so and I promise I'll give you the full regalia of it. Um, but I just want to say, I don't know if I got ahead of myself or fully explicitly stated what I meant. My concern about spiritual formation is twofold. One, maybe we think it's too nice of a process. But the second one is this, is that if we're taking it seriously, we'll begin to experience the fact that every day we're swimming upstream. We'll have the experience of swimming upstream every day, not just with the normal way of business as usual, if you want to say of the American lifestyle, but also, and this is important, business as usual for the American church as well. And my personal opinion and my engagement with what this can look like, uh, you'll find that there's, if I can use this word alienation, a, a growing alienation between a path that feels authentic and true for you and towing the line, both within culture and within your church. I mean, hopefully not this church, but, uh, you know, against the umbrella of the American church, if that makes sense. And because of that, you've got to have what I call spiritual muscle. Actually, my friend Alicia gave me that term, so I have, she promised I would give her credit. Uh, you have to have the courage and the capacity to show up every day and do something different than everyone else is doing, which I can tell you is terribly difficult and draining sometimes, which is why you need community, where two or more are gathered, right? You've got to have a certain kind of wealth that moves beyond just financial. You have to have a wealth in spiritual capital, if I can use that phrase. You have to have a wealth in social capital, if I can use that phrase. You have to have a wealth in community and in spiritual practices. You have to have a spiritual muscle in place. And that's why I ask the question, what's the thing that you can do to increase that spiritual muscle that you haven't done yet? that you know you can do? And then what's blocking you? I think if you ask one question without asking the other question, it's an incomplete question. Because if you already know you need to do it, or you've just been thinking about it, well, I could increase my prayer time to 45 minutes, or actually I could do service once a week, or whatever it is. If you haven't done it yet, there's a block in your life you haven't removed. And it's important to look at it. And look at it honestly. Just, look at, just don't argue with reality. Don't pretend like it's not there. As Byron Katie says, if you argue with reality, you'll lose, but only 100% of the time. <laughs> so take a look at what's actually blocking you and take a look at what it would actually take to remove that block and then move forth.
So Dallas Willard, again, uh, our friend in spiritual formation, said this, spiritual formation is never merely inward. If you stop at the exercise I just gave you, even if you're doing it two hours every day, you're still not doing it. You're just doing a piece of it, and you become disembodied as the prayer that Nick gave us earlier. You're maybe just doing the worship or the mindfulness piece, but you're not actually translating it into the world. (coughs) Spiritual formation is never merely inward. We have to involve the body in spiritual formation because that's where we live. And what we live from, spiritual formation is formation of the inner being of the human being resulting in transformation of the whole person, including the body in its social context, including the body in its social context, which is why I have a magnificent economic analysis here ready for you because all of us exist in a social context based on what we call economics. So I'm going to have to condense what might take 45 minutes into about three. And so I would say this. I've already kind of presented part of it to you. Uh, Wendell Berry defined economics, quote-unquote economics, as we use the term today, as the science of money-making, which is relatively crass, if not blasphemous, if we're spending the divine energy of our lives devoted to the science of money-making. There's all other kinds of quote-unquote, capital or storages of wealth that we can pull upon. Spiritual capital, social capital, material capital. I don't even like any of these phrases. I hate them, actually. But can you see how you can invest the energy of your life into very different things that can begin to create stores of wealth that allow you to move in a different direction and begin to uh, leverage the energy and creativity and capacity of your life in a way that is peace-disturbing? And uh, I'm now remembering, I brought up mindlessness. I said mindlessness instead of mindfulness because as we saw in that exercise, the body and the mind are the things that are constantly pulling us off center. The mind is the master at disagreeing with God's message to you. No, 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 don't do that. That's silly. Why would you do something like that? Oh, that's embarrassing that you just had that thought. No, don't do that. That would never work. (coughs) Has anybody ever had a thought remotely like that? No, I'm the only one. Okay, this is embarrassing. But that's okay. I'm moving forward. Um... So the one exercise that I wanted to try today is the most un-American exercise I could think of. Oh, this is being recorded, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> but I'm still going to do it. Um, I have uh, made for you a nice graph in the Cartesian plane. I'm also a mathematician. I love Cartesian plane. It's right here. Um, I'm sure all of you remember this from high school algebra. Uh, and I, I think this represents the, empire, the empirical mind, the mind of empire right here laid out for you in just three simple lines. Uh, This is a smiley face, which means satisfaction or happiness. This is the dollar sign, which means uh, financial capital or wealth. And as you can see, we have a 45 degree angled arrow heading straight up, implying that, well, the more money you have, the happier you get. Right on. We're done. (laughs) I'm gonna drop the mic, walk on out. Have a great time. Turns out, it's actually not true. I mean, actually not really true. Even if you disagree philosophically, in reality, it's not true. Actual scientists in lab coats have done real studies, and they found out this isn't true. The real graph, which they have found, same xy axis, looks like this. Looks a little different. (laughs) We got a problem. (laughs) <laughs> looks a little different. Um, as you can see, it begins, it looks similar to the graph in the beginning. It starts going up. 
uh, because especially in our modern time, if you don't have access to any money, you're probably not getting a lot of food and water, which is a basic fundamental human need. And as the Buddha said, you can't be taught the Dharma or the teachings on an empty stomach. So there's a hierarchy of needs for humanity, and we have to meet those in order. Actually, I have the graph two pages back. Um, and so we need food and water. We need safety and security. These are in order. Then we have community and belonging. Then we have purpose. Then we have self-actualization. Does that make sense? I realized that was fast. But you meet them in order. So money is actually only helpful with the bottom one and a half of those. It's helpful in our culture with food and um, water shelter. It's helpful halfway with safety and security. That's both a physical and a physiolo uh, psychological state. After that, community and purpose, community and belonging, purpose, self-actualization, money is almost irrelevant. So if you spend your entire life working towards money, which is exactly <coughs> what empire wants you to do, you're actually not meeting any of your fundamental human needs up to a certain point. That's why we hit this point right here, which is where our happiness starts to decline, even though we're getting more money. Is this making sense? This is not terribly complicated, but it's, it's never talked about. So my question for you is, take a moment. If you know the answer, don't say it yet. What's this point? What is that? This graph is implying that, you know, as we keep making more money, our happiness actually starts going downhill after a certain point. Does that make sense? We're making money, things are getting better. All of a sudden, we're still making money, things are getting worse. What's the tipping point? $75,000. $75,000. Okay? Uh, just as a reference point, which might be helpful, uh, just as a completely different way of living, I live on a farm out of Northeast Missouri. My entire operating expenses for my entire life last year was $2,000. So $75,000 to me is so grossly unthinkable in my life or actually would be a whole lot of fun giving all that away um, that I can't even fathom what that would mean to have that kind of money. Of course, for other people, that would be a paucity. I understand that. I'm just kind of setting up a relative thing here. Anybody else want to take a guess? Is this American culture? Is, there, is it this graph representing? This was across all cultures. Huh. Is that when our basic needs are met? Ah! This is a highly sophisticated Latin word. So... I'll pronounce it for you slowly. It's enough. <laughs> enough. Enough's enough. Once we've got enough, whatever that is for you, maybe $75,000 isn't too much. Maybe it's, too, maybe, I mean, maybe it's not enough. Maybe it's too much. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is for you, whatever's enough, after that, why are you still getting things and stuff and money? You've got enough. It just becomes clutter. It's a waste of your time. You're wasting your life at that point your life quality decreases dramatically. And so my question for you, but I have to show you in the other part of this graph real quick, my question for you to break out on is a question that we almost never get asked in American society because billions and billions of dollars are being spent every day to convince you that you are not enough or that what you have is not enough or that who you are is not enough or what you're doing is not enough. It's called advertising. Maybe you've experienced it. So, I'm suggesting, let's take a moment and consider what is enough? What's enough for you? Because you know what? There's a beautiful part of this graph. There's a second piece to it, and it looks like this. There actually is an arrow from the point of enough that actually skyrockets exponentially for your satisfaction. Your satisfaction, it actually is possible to make it go through the roof as it turns out. Anybody, but you have to, something has to happen when you hit the point of enough. You know what it is? Anyone? Giving. 
giving. You have enough. Why are you still hoarding stuff? You have enough. Why are you still gathering things? Scientists proved this. I'm not making this up. Give. And then everything that comes to you and through your life can just pass through you to the person most in need. It's a beautiful feeling. And so we're going to take a few minutes and just define what's enough for you. And I want to actually pause just for a moment and just say this. There's all kinds of, again, that word capital is storages of wealth. I've already hinted at some of them. There's actual financial capital. There's relationships that we have with each other. There's uh, living or natural capital. For instance, uh, I grew a garden, so I don't have to go to the supermarket and buy food because I grow it. Um, there's spiritual capital, if you want to use that word, or a faith, which you might call faith and spiritual muscle. There's wisdom or experiential knowledge. You see where I'm going with this? I've got it on another sheet up here. There's nine of them that I've figured, well, some, that some people have figured out, not just me. Um, so the question is, what's enough in all of those? Just take a moment for you in your life, and we're just going to take a few minutes. But just have a conversation with your buddy, a different buddy than before. What's enough? Try it. Okay, everybody ready to bring it back? I know this is a juicy topic. I know you could go for a long time on this, and I invite you to do so, actually. Not just tonight, but for the rest of your lives, continue this conversation. But I just want to point out, can you see how this is a continuum? Gandhi's word for this was ahimsa, which is often translated as nonviolence. But for Gandhi, ahimsa was a state of love that was so powerful that violence couldn't enter that presence. Lust, greed, violence, hatred would not enter that presence in your being. And because of that, that's the work of self-purification. When you begin to take that into the world, yes, you meet your fundamental human needs as simply as possible. You use the time that you need to take care of your fundamental economic realities. And then the rest of your life is a trust. The rest of your life is a trust in service and in giving to the rest of the world. And whatever you, wherever you feel called, however you want to disturb the peace in your own particular way, uh, I believe it was Parker Palmer who defined vocation as where your greatest gifts meet your world, meets the world's your community's greatest needs. And the rest of our time can be spent with that. Our work can be our prayer, or as Khalil Gibran said, our work is love made visible. Modern economics calls a job a disutility. A disutility. They're actually admitting that like, getting a job sucks. They just straight up say it. It's a disutility. That's a fancy word for like it's something you don't really want to do, but you kind of got to get money. So you do this thing, and then you get some money, and then you can go party. But the economics of love is the inversion of this completely. It says, okay, do the thing that you have to do to take care of your economic reality. Reduce as much as possible what those needs actually are so the vast majority of your time can be you leveraging your love and your uniqueness in the world in a way that's of service to the world and disturbing the peace the quote-unquote comfort and business as usual of empire in whatever way that speaks to you. Does this make sense? Yep. These aren't different things. It's the same thing. It's the same way of being moved into the world in a way that speaks to you. And if you do that, you're going to run into empire, which is part number three of what to do when that happens. But I also just want to pause for a second and say, 
It's 8 o'clock. <laughs> I'm just, you know, honoring our integrity, which is now's the time when we're supposed to be wrapping up. But if you're willing, I just want to invite you to do one more exercise, which will be quick because I want you to go through all three steps. And if you're not willing, then I invite you to leave. <laughs> not that you need my invitation <laughs> to leave. If you've had enough. <laughs> exactly. Know when you've got enough, and you're done. So uh, I'll just explain the exercise to you, and then you can make your choice. Being back or fighting you, but they are sacred just as you are. They're a creation of God. They're holy, too. The people who got into the cars and drove into the crowd to destroy those living humans, they're holy, too. This is complicated. But it's true. Even though they may be overtaken by hate, and overtaken by thought processes, processes that are very much disturbing their being, they're still a holy creation of God. And so what we're called, and this is probably the hardest part of the Gandhian invitation, is when you're moving into the forces of empire, however those look and whatever those are, including inside of yourself, you meet them with love. And you work to transform them with love. Because hate can't conquer hate. Love alone can, as the great sayings have taught us. And so our breakout for this last session is this. Who's your enemy right now? Who's a person you're in conflict with? Who's a person who completely disagrees with you or your being or your ideas or just, you know, isn't having it? Personal is better if there's an actual person in your life that you can think of. But if you can't, you can move a little bit broader to uh, an administration of past or present or certain people who have done something that you couldn't possibly imagine how that could happen, like what happened on Saturday for me, trying to imagine. And the exercise is this. Take that person that you're in conflict with or the person who has an ideological stance utterly opposite of you. To your neighbor, you're going to speak completely without contempt, without sarcasm, without cynicism, the most genuinely you possibly could Speak the truth that that person's carrying. Speak the wisdom that they're holding or speak the pain that they're experiencing so that you can begin to develop empathy for them. If you actually believe that this person is so filled with hate that they couldn't possibly be carrying truth, then at least speak from the pain that they're experiencing. Start there. Because if we have a wall up to people who disagree with us, we're never going to transform the hate in the world because love alone can do that. And so we have to be able to generate the love inside of us for the person that we most disagree with, who is most hateful towards us. And to be able to do that in the moment when we are being attacked. The one story for this before we do our breakout is civil rights movement. Student sitting at the counter in the protests when they were doing the counter sit-ins. The white mob comes in and a guy threatens the black student and says, I'm going to cut you wide open with a knife. The black student stands up and lifts up his shirt 
and says, I'm going to do my best to love you while you do it. He didn't say, I'm going to love you while you do it. He said, I'm going to do my best to love you while you do it. And the attacker froze, and his hand started to shake, and he dropped his knife and ran out. It doesn't always end up that way, but it did in that moment. And so your invitation in this moment is to do your best to love the person who would much prefer that you didn't exist, or at least they think that way in this moment. And then your partner can feed back what they're hearing to you, the essence of it. You're listening, your partner's listening to what you're saying, and then after a couple minutes when you say it, the partner feeds back the essence of what they're hearing. Does that make sense? Just the essence of like, okay, you're saying your pain is it, or your truth that you're carrying is this, and then you'll switch. So take about three minutes, three to f- three minutes per person or so. Okay? Give it a try. Thanks for your willingness, everyone, to dive deep. I hope you'll continue to go with these questions to wherever they're going to take you. I want to go ahead and do kind of our formal wrap-up now, but I also want you to know that personally, this is what my entire life is devoted to, what I've been speaking of tonight and how that translates. And so if you're curious or excited about these ideas, I know myself and um, I can vaguely maybe speak for some of the core team that like, we want to keep talking about this for as long as you want to talk about it. So I personally can say that too. So thanks for your attention. Uh, I just want to reread two quotes to you as an invitation for the rest of your life, which is this. Again, Dallas Willard, spiritual formation is never merely inward. Spiritual formation is never merely inward. We have to involve the body because that's where we live and what we live from. Spiritual formation is the inner being, Inner spiritual formation is the formation of the inner being, of the human being, resulting in transformation of the whole person, including the body, in its social context. context. And because of that, Romans 12.2, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't conform any longer to business as usual. But be transformed by the renewing of your entire being. Then you'll be able to test You'll be able to test it in real life and approve what God's will is. So there's a quick closing by Wendy. Thanks.